Assalamu all. Welcome to another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Right, so if I sound a bit croaky, it's because my voice is absolute shot, <laughs> yeah? So, okay, now the episode you're about to hear was recorded in early October 2022. Since recording, the prominent journalist Arshad Sharif has been assassinated and Imran Khan announced a long march to the capital Islamabad on 28th of October. Immediately prior to the publishing of this episode, the world heard of an assassination attempt on Imran Khan's life. So this episode features Aisha Khan and Dr. Shala Khan continuing their conversation with Shahali Tareen, Associate Professor of Religious Studies, Department Chair of Religious Studies at Franklin Marshall College, and the author of the widely acclaimed volume, Defending Muhammad in Modernity. So in this episode, the focus is on Shahali Tareen's work on the relationship between secularism and the continued colonial legacy of Pakistan. Listeners will note how the debate about colonialism and secularism provides a backdrop to recent events in Pakistan. Let's have a listen in. and hello to all our listeners. This is In Conversation, a podcast from Network Reorient, which is part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. I'm Shahla Khan, and in this episode, Aisha Khan and I will continue our conversation with Dr. Sher Ali Tareen about his writings on Iranophobia, Islamophobia, and secular liberalism in Pakistan. Aisha, would you like to kick yes, off? Yes, yes. Um, so, Dr. Tareen, um, if we could turn towards uh, to your article, you know, the article that you wrote in 2019, September 2019, and it was about desperations and, you know, ambiguities of uh, decolonial politics. Um, and you wrote it as an evaluation of Khan's first year as prime minister. Um, you contextualize his successes and his shortcomings amidst the you know, stream of vitriol directed at him uh, from, from leading political commentators within and outside Pakistan. Um, would you like to tell our listeners what it might mean to be decolonial in Pakistan's political context and also reflect on the relationship between decoloniality and secularity? Um, after all, you know, um, are liberals uh, in Pakistan and in, indeed elsewhere, secularity is a precondition for, for progress and stability for them. Uh, for example, you know, you will hear them say like, we need to, you know, banish mullahs just like Atatok did. So what do you say about this? Well, before I get to the specific context of Pakistan and the more recent political history, I'll just make the statement that there can be no uh, aspiration or manifestation of any measure of decolonial mm. politics until and unless that also contains a critique of liberal secular power and the operations of secularism, both as a state project and secularity mm. as a set mm. of normative values and dispositions uh, that are oftentimes contrasted with uh, being quote unquote religious. So this whole binary of the religious and the secular, until mm. and unless there is a critique of that binary and until and unless there is a critique of the way in which uh, projects of modern secular power to frame and categorize religion in a distinct fashion 
as an object of life that ought to be contained, that ought to be moderated, that ought to be uh, kept in its proper private space, uh, uh, lest it spill over into the public sphere and create havoc and violence. Unless that kind of a way of imagining the relationship between the religious and the secular is actively critiqued and is actively rethought and is um, uninherited, there can be no possibility of any decolonial politics. So, mm. uh, the, so uh, because, because secularism and the very framing of religion as the other of the secular uh, mm. is so uh, intimately interwoven to the project of colonialism. And in some ways, that is, uh, in many ways, the project of colonialism. Uh, that uh, without that critique, you cannot think decolonially. So that's the mm. first thing that I would uh, point out there. Um, so, I mean, um, I guess in, a, in the Pakistani context or any kind of a colonial, uh, quote-unquote, post-colonial context, um, actively resisting and actively overcoming and uninheriting those kinds of um, secular framings and secular categorizations of religion, religious actors, uh, is absolutely crucial. Um, uh, because ultimately, uh, secularism as an ideology, as uh, as uh, a, a, a normative virtue, is so intimately entangled with the mm-hmm. operations of modern state sovereignty, whether that is a quote unquote secular state or a or a nominally Islamic state, etc. But mm-hmm. the paradoxes of secularism and the paradoxes of modern state sovereignty are so intimately uh, entangled. Um, that you cannot critique state power, you cannot critique mm. the excesses uh, or the uh, uh, consequences, uh, oftentimes quite violent, of state power without also including a critique uh, of uh, secularism. So this mm. very idea, this very sort of um, normative uh, uh, assumption almost, a naturalized assumption that you need some degree of the separation of religion and politics uh, or some kind of uh, the, the, the prophylactic of secularism to treat the excesses of religion and religious violence. Um, This is, of course, a very naturalized, a very commonplace kind of assumption, but we need to turn that assumption on its head. uh, And that assumption needs to be rethought. And that assumption can only be rethought if you think critically, if you think carefully, if you think uh, in some kind of a nuanced fashion about the operations of modern secular power, uh, which oftentimes is is left quite absent from uh, many uh, sort of, uh, uh, at least popular circles uh, in 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 uh, Pakistan, India, uh, etc. So, with that kind of a preamble, if we come to the uh, particular context, uh, in that particular article, I was trying to think again to continue from the conversation we were having last week um, mm. uh, about some of the gestures of decolonial politics we did see, nonetheless, during the first year of Imran Khan's power, mm. uh, uh, whereby there was a gesture of, you know, it was oftentimes lampooned and oftentimes caricatured that you know he's opening the governor house of. Lahore to the open public, etc. What's what that what that's just populist gimmicks, etc. But behind those so-called populist gimmicks, I think was a larger kind of a um, uh, uh, at least some kind of an impulse to unherit these architectures of colonial power, and and of course, um, or this whole idea of you know the very sort of model of uh, uh, doing as much as possible to to. Um, uh, to uh, uh, address the the needs and the, uh, uh, the the problems of the dispossessed in theaters like police stations or in terms of the kind of SAS program uh, mm. uh, that he launched the empathy program uh, for 
you know, that was really, really uh, useful during the, pandem uh, the pandemic with cash transfers and the kind of programs of nutrition and so on and so forth. I'm sure there are problems in those programs. I'm sure there are limitations and shortcomings. I'm sure there are many ways in which perhaps the machineries of the state are employed, which can be critically looked at. I, I, I get all of that, uh, uh, you know, but, but nonetheless, there was some kind of a very interesting and a very productive impulse, at least, of thinking about uninheriting those structures of coloniality and colonial power uh, that had... Uh, you know, led to what he oftentimes calls the elite capture of society. So, uh, uh, so you know, in terms of, for example, the way in which he talked about Kashmir, that it is really the people of Kashmir who will get to decide what their future will be, not people of Pakistan. That was a very, I think, in the Pakistani context, a very important and bold statement that he made repeatedly. Uh, as I was talking about last time, the way in which he talked about the question of uh, 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 Islamophobia and and uh, and caricatures of uh, Prophet Muhammad, uh, I think were also quite nuanced in that, how he connected, uh, you know, the whole point that he made about uh, how the injury which is caused through the caricatures to the Prophet, through um, lampooning the Prophet, oftentimes goes untranslatable in Western circles because they cannot understand the kind of embodied relationship that Muslims have to the Prophet. So they cannot really understand the kind of pain which is involved and the kind of injury that is involved in this process and that also tears apart the moral fabric of communities within Western contexts as well, where Muslims are a minority. So I thought that was a very, very nuanced argument that he made repeatedly at the UN and then also the OIC. Um, uh, and uh, so, I, I, so I just wanted to capture, there are many other examples also in that article, mm -hmm. the aspirations and ambiguities of decolonial politics. But I just wanted to capture some of those important moments that I think had been left out. And I also wanted to sort of capture the kind of uh, uh, disproportionate kind of alarm, which alarm bells, which went ringing when he came to power in Western media and also in Indian media, etc., and of course in uh, the local media as well. I think that was very disproportionate, and one can be critical without resorting to disproportionate ambush. Is basically mm -hmm. what I was trying to uh, get at. And in that article, I was also critical of many things as well. Uh, you know, the fact that the hospitality towards the dispossessed or the minorities. Uh, does not translate into a more nuanced position on the Ahmadiyya, I think, is a major mm -hmm. uh, problem there. Uh, there is no condemnation of China. Um, uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, the kind of cozying up with MBS, I think, was very problematic, even though maybe there were economic reasons and, 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 and you know, uh, uh, um, desperations involved there, but still. Uh, so there were, of course, uh, and of course, uh, the big elephant in the room that uh, his long-running position, in fact, I think for many years, uh, that he, the way he used to connect uh, American imperial power with the local Pakistani military's uh, violence and excesses, etc., that we used to be sufficient for at least a couple of decades, that in some ways evaporated when he came to power because he needed to keep the power structures uh, in balance. Uh, so, you know, you cannot be a party of justice if uh, your critique of injustice does not uh, involve the arguably the most... Uh, 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 you know, prominent and pernicious uh, carriers of injustice in society, that is the military elite. Mm. Uh, so those are the things that one can be critical about, certainly. But there are some important nuanced things that were also happening. Again, I'm interested in a nuanced, uh, specific uh, analysis rather than resorting to either uh, complete, you know, uh, uh, dismissiveness and caricatures, or on the other hand, uh, some kind of a propping up as some kind of an unblemished mm. savior either. Uh, that in some ways, looking at the complexities and nuances of a human character, and he's an interesting character in that regard, mm -hmm. is what I was interested in. And that's basically my religious studies training, I guess, coming in. But I'll stop there. 
So uh, you you mentioned um, the word alarm, and that ties in very nicely with with my next um, question. So if if we tie together the many threads in this conversation, um, which connect monophobia to Islamophobia to secularity to liberalism, and we project these onto the domain of culture, we find that they converge in liberals' response to the Turkish uh, series Dirilish Ertuğrul which was dubbed into Urdu at Khan's behest and aired on a national TV channel. So th this series has attracted uh, record audiences globally, and it also proved to be a smash hit in Pakistan. For liberals, however, who are generally complacent about Pakistani audiences, audiences' uptake of offerings from Hollywood and Bollywood, joint Indo-Pakistani cultural ventures, and even lit fests extolling soft Hindutva, uh, the public's enthusiastic reception for, for this particular series felt danger. In fact, you know, the alarm bell started ringing. It could only be understood, uh, as far as they were concerned, as a set of pathologies. For example, an identity crisis, an imperial nostalgia, a fetish for violence, militarism, militarism, or even a disavowal of their purportedly authentic links, in, in uh, authentic roots in India. Uh, looking beyond Pakistan, we could compare the liberals' indignation with that of the Darul Iftar, the main uh, fatwa issuing body in Sisi's Egypt, which went even further and actually banned the series. And here again, we see a family resemblance between liberals and counter-revolutionary and authoritarian actors. Now, keeping this particular episode in view, um, the liberals' response to this to, to Dirilish Ertuğrul in Pakistan. I'd like to ask you, how would you evaluate liberals' role as cultural influencers, influencers in present-day Pakistan? That's a great question. So uh, two things one can say to that. You know, again, this is a good example that, you know, one could perhaps be critical of some aspects of Tegrul and the way in which it is being presented for a certain notion of Turkish nationalism and the kind of sort of past it is recreating, etc. Uh, 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 full disclaimer, I haven't seen that series. I, I'm a two and a half year old. So I haven't really seen much TV since the last three years, I'll be honest. But, you know, I, I, I follow the press and the kind of things, the commentary. Yeah. So I have a decent sense. I have a decent sense of what's happening there. Um, so one can be critical of aspects of that series and, you know, how it's being uh, uh, repackaged in a place like Pakistan. One can also be critical, perhaps, of the way like a, that a figure like Imran Khan, perhaps, is presenting that series as an alternative to what he called, you know, uh, Indian cinema, etc. And the kind of mm. certain kind of an articulation of Pakistani nationalism that is involved there. I think he used to caricature Indians. I don't agree with his caricature of uh, Indian. I mean, of course, one has these days one cannot really watch much of any Bollywood because pretty much every actor and every figure there is uh, uh, complicit with an um, genocidal yeah. regime. But, you know, there have been some interesting artistic productions of Indian cinema. So one can do all of that critique, but this kind of hyper reaction that this is some kind of a corrosion of Pakistani values and this is some kind of an external Islamic influence of Arab influence, Arab or Turkish influence, etc. I mean, it was not even Arab because often, but oftentimes it was packaged as Arab or uh, some Islamic, right? That is not uh, local. This 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 whole trope of the 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 the, the foreign, right? It's not local, but it's the foreign. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, there's the very binary of the foreign and the local. Where, where does the local begin and the foreign end, etc. in a place like South Asia would really lead to a lot of uh, uh, interpretive gymnastics if one goes uh, in that in that direction. 
so this kind of a sort of disproportionate reaction, I think, speaks to a certain anxiety, speaks to a certain anxiety, and that goes to the heart of the discussion that we've been having, this underlying secular assumption, sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit, that if you let religion seep into the public sphere, if you let religion seep into the imagination of the public, then it will create negative consequences, right? That is in some ways the underlying uh, assumption here. Uh, so you have to contain, you have to moderate. So it's an act of moderation in some ways, what gets seen, what gets valorized in terms of proper uh, articulations of popular cinema, uh, et cetera. Um, so, so that is basically what is, what is at work here. Uh, in terms of uh, these, uh, uh, the, the, these culture wars. So the critique was not as much launched on the cinema, cinematographic qualities or the, the narrative or the screenplay, et cetera, but it was some kind of an other which is being imposed on the local self, which I think is a, almost a xenophobic kind of a narrative. Uh, so this is kind of a self-flagellating, self-hating kind of a, uh, kind of a pers uh, perspective as if there is some kind of a pristine local out there that you can that you can sort of canonize and oppose with the foreign. Uh, so I think that is that is deeply problematic. And again, it shows that critique when it's not focused on specific details uh, can become ineffective and also uh, politically uh, problematic. Hmm. But would, would you say they are influential as sort of- Oh, right, the second part. I think, I think there are two ways of looking at it. Uh, you know, one could say, uh, absolutely. I think look at the English press. I mean, there is, uh, hardly any month goes by where there aren't some opinion pieces, et cetera, which reek of liberal secular um, uh, 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 sensibilities. Uh, I mean, there have been opinion pieces published uh, calling for recognition of Israel because ultimately that's what all developed countries have to do. Fine, they have committed some violence, but that's ultimately what we need to do. The number of opinion pieces on things like, you know, Tigril and uh, uh, Islamophobia, et cetera. Um, uh, I, there is a certain kind of influence. I think there is a certain kind of a uh, kind of a premium that is paid to English-speaking uh, sort of uh, uh, actors uh, who basically have imbibed this idea that progress and development is ultimately the embrace of a, a, a liberal secular worldview with very little capacity for thinking about some of the problems and darker sides of this whole uh, history and this narrative. Who are not very well read on critical secularism studies. That is basically, I think, an abridged version is needed uh, widely in contexts like Pakistan yes. and the kind of elite circles, uh, that this is not about some kind of an opposition between religious obscurantism and liberal secular progress, but things are a lot more complicated. And all it will take is, you know, a three-month dose of good reading on that, on that front. Uh, so, but yes, I think there is tremendous influence in terms of the literature fests that happened, right? I mean, there is this, yeah. uh, this, this literature fest that happens uh, every year, the, for example, the Karachi Literature Festival, mm. what is it called? Uh, um, uh, the word that they use for it, uh, it's an interesting uh, Urdu word, um, I'm, 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 I'm escaping, right? Something about newness, uh, um, I'm escaping the word right now. Um, uh, um, yeah, I'm forgetting it right now. But anyways, the, so so when you look at the roster of the people who are get, who get sort of invited and who gets to speak at these places, uh, ultimately it is the roster of a certain kind of a secular elite. I mean, how many how many ulama have come to speak at these kinds of venues, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't have to be. They don't all have to be these kinds of rabble rousing, controversial ulama. There are some very very sophisticated ulama who are very critical of the madrasa itself, who in fact mm -hmm. might have a lot in common with some of these liberal seculars, who are in fact very critical of someone like Imran Khan, for example. Uh, I can name someone like Amar Khan Nasser of Gujranwala, is a, a phenomenal scholar, uh, 
uh, mm. who, who, who publishes, has written prolifically on very difficult questions like minorities, women's rights, et cetera, through the tradition. Uh, you can yeah. disagree with him on some positions, but he does speak from within the tradition, publishes this monthly journal called the Sharia in Urdu, which comes out every mm. uh, month. Um, uh, so uh, uh, why why would someone like him not be invited? Why would, uh, you know, uh, women from within Muslim traditionalism, Alimat, uh, not be invited at these? So there is an ultimate kind of an idea that this, this we are some waging some kind of a... Uh, uh, some kind of a battle against the forces of regress and stagnation and tradition, and we are the banner bearers of progress and liberal secularity, uh, peppered with some, you know, scholars from uh, the UK and the US to give it an international recognition. I mean, it's great that there are literature festivals and all these things happen. That's excellent. And it's excellent that people get to learn about new sort of books, etc. I'm not being critical of that. But just as, a, as an example of the kind of power that kind of wields in a certain uh, set up and 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 uh, among a certain kind of a, uh, a circle in terms of the the print the, these festivals these sort of discourses etc. So yeah, I think on the one hand you can say that you know it is really the quote unquote religious activists and scholars who are powerful because they have street power and they can have protests and so on. Uh, but this kind of power, this kind of soft power with which you can funnel you know uh, uh, the influence and um, uh, financial help from NGOs in the West, etc. This is also a very important part of uh, power, and that's how secularity works. Secularity mm-hmm. works through the combination of state power, this kind of non-state actors, uh, and the kind of permeation of these underlying assumptions of secularity that then become so naturalized that they cannot be rethought. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there is a certain kind of power that that is wielded, which uh, um, is there. Yeah, along with the, what seems to be quite a concerted attempt at gatekeeping. Right. These are the people we allow in and these are the people we'll, we will exclude. But I think, Aisha, you, you wanted to ask a final question. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, Dr. Thrain, moving towards the conclusion of this discussion, um, as we have noted earlier, uh, Pakistan you know, is going through a deep political, economic, and I would say like institutional crisis. Um, right now, we have a government with no legitimacy in the public. Um, in this situation, you know, there are numerous analysts who have drawn parallels with the, with the political crisis in Sri Lanka, and they are suggesting that Pakistan, you know, could be heading in a similar direction. So how do you understand the current situation, and do you see any solution of this crisis? Well, uh, I'm not sure about a solution. I mean, this is, the, the crisis is, I think, too complicated and really mm-hmm. multi, deeply layered and, uh, mm-hmm. for there to be a solution. I mean, I think in the short term, the key question is, uh, I think something the remarkable thing that has been happening in the last few months, which should have happened much earlier, is that this uh, oftentimes uh, villainized and caricatured so-called middle class mm. uh, uh, is rising up against the military establishment. And I think that is an excellent that is an excellent mm. development. It can be a very dangerous development, of course, and can mm. lead to bloodshed. But I think that's an excellent development. Uh, mm. And it's it's it's. Um, I hope that it's uh, uh, sustained. I mean, that is. Uh, uh, the hope here that even if uh, the PTI comes back to power, that it will not go back to its older ways of trying to have some kind of a, um, you know, some kind of an alliance of convenience, mm-hmm. but that this critique of the deep state continues. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I think that is the most hopeful thing that is happening here. That is that the, the middle class is rising up against this modernist military elite. Um, uh, but where that goes remains to be seen. I mean, there is a combination of a certain kind of hopelessness and a certain kind of resignation, and this kind of a uh, uh, counter utopia, which is happening, I mean, a complete uh, sort of nightmare of a situation in which absconders are now coming back to the country, 
yeah. and uh, so it's 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 really an, uh, a, a nightmare on on uh, on on steroids that is that is happening but i think with this kind of extreme uh, conditions one can also hope for some kind of a floodgates to open that that leads to a new uh, beginning uh, but uh, i think ultimately what ultimately what is required is some kind of a politics that combines a critique of the deep state and an active a way to demilitarize uh, the region uh, mm. with a critique of liberal secular power with also critique of pathological inheritances of the tradition on the part of some members of quote and quote uh, the uh, uh, you know uh, uh, religious elite uh, so mm. all those three things have to happen together for some kind of yeah. a new political horizon to 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 arise um um so uh one cannot of course expect uh, you know massive and wholesale changes but i think baby steps can be taken in each of these directions uh, mm-hmm. but that remains to be seen i think the next few months are absolutely crucial to see which direction things go into mm-hmm. more, more hopelessness or some kind of a new beginning um mm-hmm. it remains to be seen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess question, yeah. go on, Aisha, go on. No, i was just saying that you know thank you very much for this informative and you know illuminating discussion and shela i think you are going to have like some concluding remarks uh, of this discussion that we had like last week and today so yeah just to echo what you said aisha it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and and i think we've covered managed to cover quite a lot of ground and there's obviously much more to be spoken of because as aisha in this last question as we i think we all agree pakistan is now at, at something of a cliffhanger exactly um, this does seem to be a, you know a, a quite a turning point which will go either one mm-hmm. way or the other um and there's lots to be said and discussed and deliberated but but once again we thank you ever so much for joining us and we hope uh, that we'll have you again on this podcast my pleasure the, my pleasure thank you thank you, thank you, thank you so much thank, thank you. you so much thank you This is an episode of In Conversation brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast wing of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.